If you have never truly repented of your sins and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, someday you will stand before God. You can put your head in the sand, you can deny it, you can ignore it, you can pretend it's a long way off, you can do whatever you want, but it's coming. God's promised. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Was there ever a time in your life when you felt wronged by someone else? How did you react? How does the biblical law of retaliation define true justice and at the same time restrain personal vengeance? Are there differences in the Old Testament and the New Testament in how citizens of God's spiritual kingdom should respond when personally wronged? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part two of his current series, An Eye for an Eye. You know, you don't have to look too far to find people who have been mistreated and harmed. Maybe you've experienced injustice yourself, but how did you respond to that hurt? Or put another way, what should those who follow Jesus do in response to being mistreated? All questions to keep in mind as we join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. Now, there's a lot of debate among scholars about whether this lex talionis was ever carried out literally or not. In other words, there's a lot of debate about whether if someone broke another person's tooth, if the, the judges said break that person's tooth. It's possible. And there's one passage we'll look at that would be the strongest to imply that. However, many scholars, and I personally agree with them, that that is not how this law was normally practiced. It is simply a principle. It's a principial statement that says, let the punishment fit the crime. Because even in this chapter, if you go down to verses 26 and 27, you have a man striking his, the eye of his male or female slave. By the way, let me just stop here and say, God regulated slavery in Old Testament Israel, but it wasn't the kind of slavery we had in America the law of God absolutely forbid that kind of slavery. And in fact, if someone kidnapped another person and made him a slave, God said, put him to death. The slavery that's in the Old Testament was slavery where someone had been captured in war or a person had indentured himself or herself into slavery. So in that situation, God regulates it. And he says, if, if someone is struck and that eye is destroyed, let him go free on account of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. This principle of a monetary, in this case the freedom of the slave, a monetary penalty levied against the criminal is in other places as well. So I think that's what usually happened. A financial penalty was levied for the injury that was commensurate with the crime. The Jewish Mishnah also says that's how the law was usually practiced. An appropriate financial penalty that fit the crime was levied. For example, here's one quote from the Mishnah. If a man blinds his fellow's eye, cuts off his hand, or breaks his foot, his fellow is looked upon as if he was a slave to be sold in the market. They will assess how much he was worth before the injury and how much he is worth now, and the difference would be the financial penalty that would be paid the person who was injured. So it was a financial penalty that was exacted. I think that's probably how this was carried out practically. But regardless, what I want you to see is that the lex talionis was a just sentence that fits the crime. Now folks, 
This is obvious to us as we sit here today, right? But that's only because we enjoy a legal system that actually has its foundations in the lex talionis. Our entire legal system is built on the concept that the punishment must fit the crime. We don't always carry that out perfectly, but that's the idea behind our criminal system. But in the cultural context of the ancient world, the Mosaic law and this lex talionis was absolutely radical. The law at Sinai, as you remember, was given shortly after the Exodus. That was in about the year 1445 B.C. Now, if you remember your history, there's another ancient law code that was in a similar time frame. The 18th century Babylonian law code that you learned about in school called the Code of whom? Hammurabi. Code of Hammurabi. There are a few similarities between the Mosaic Law and the Code of Hammurabi, but there are radical differences. And one of those radical differences is in how the lex talionis, the idea of a, of a just penalty, is carried out. Let me give you an example. Code of Hammurabi said, if you stole, this is how you should be penalized. Listen to the Code of Hammurabi. If a man hires a man to oversee his farm and furnishes him the seed grain and entrusts with him oxen and contracts with him to cultivate the field, and that man steals either the seed or the crop and it be found in his possession, they shall cut off his hand. What does the Old Testament law say? is to be done to a thief. He is to repay the money with interest. You see the difference of the crime and punishment matching? So it was radical. You know, unfortunately, there are many who are ignorant of the times and of the Old Testament who think that this eye for an eye was actually barbaric. And so they attack the Bible in that way. When the truth is, not only was the biblical version of Lex Talionis radical for its own cultural context, but for thousands of years, it has served as the foundation for just legal systems, including our own. Okay, let's look at the second passage, Leviticus 24, and I won't spend as much time on each of these. I just want you to see these three passages before we go back to Matthew 5. Leviticus 24, and look at verse 17. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. If a man injures his neighbor, here we go, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so shall it be inflicted on him. Thus, the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. Now, verse 22, there shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. Now here, the only thing that's really added to our understanding is that this standard of lex talionis, of justice, is to be carried out for everyone alike, both the Jewish people and the foreigners living among them. Now look at the last passage. Turn over to Deuteronomy 19. Here we discover... An absolutely crucial fact to our understanding of our Lord's words. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he's committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. 
If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid. By the way, there is a deterrent to punishment of criminals. And will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now the crucial point this passage adds is this. The stipulation of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was never intended to be carried out by individuals. Instead, it was the standard for sentencing that was to be used by judges in the legal system in Israel. The Old Testament passages do not mean take personal revenge whenever you are wronged. They mean exactly the opposite. Do not avenge yourself, but let justice be administered publicly. That was the point. J.A. Motyer writes, This absolutely equal apportionment of justice promotes a wholesome society and acts as an effective deterrent. Far from being a charter for excess, the lex talionis guards the rights of the guilty and maintains the dignity of the law. Far from being a piece of ancient barbarism, it should still apply and God help the state where it does not. So what the Old Testament taught, what I want you to see is what the Old Testament taught was good and just and helpful. It laid down the foundational principle for the rule of law. Tragically, though, the scribes and Pharisees had completely distorted that divine intention behind this extraordinary law. Let's briefly examine what the scribes and Pharisees taught. We've seen what the law itself meant in its context. So what did they do with it? How did they teach it? How did they mess it up? Well, in each of the six illustrations that Jesus uses in in chapter 5, he's not challenging the Old Testament, but how the scribes had distorted the true meaning of the Old Testament Scripture. How do we know that? We know this is what he's doing, first of all, because of the unique way in which Jesus introduces each of these six illustrations. Look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said... Now, that unusual expression is our cue to see that Jesus is not quoting the Old Testament directly, but the scribes' misinterpretation of it. Because how does Jesus ordinarily begin a quote from the Old Testament? Well, if I were to take you back to chapter 4, to the temptation, three times Jesus responds to the devil, and he says to him, because what? It is written. It is written. This is what God said, or Isaiah the prophet said. Here he uses this, you have heard that it was said. And that's because the scribes were using the words of the Old Testament text, but they were radically misinterpreting their true meaning. So Jesus makes it clear then that he's not referring to the Old Testament directly, but to the scribes' flawed interpretation of it by using that strange expression, you have heard that it was said. But there's another way we know that Jesus is not dealing with the Old Testament directly and sort of changing it, but rather 
correcting the misinterpretation, it's because he makes it absolutely explicit in the last illustration. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Notice that's in all caps. That's from the Old Testament. And hate your enemy. Folks, do a concordance search. Do however you want. You won't find that expression in the Old Testament. That's not from the Scripture. That was what the scribes taught. That was the logical inference they drew from you shall love your neighbor. But you can hate your enemy. So understand then, Jesus is correcting what the scribes did in misinterpreting. So exactly how then did the scribes misinterpret the lex talionis? What did they do with it? Well, it's implied in Jesus' correction. We can see what they did by what Jesus has to say here. And let me sort of summarize it this way. They made lex talionis not about a judge's just sentence of a criminal, but about personal retaliation, personal revenge. The very law God gave to protect against personal vengeance, they had twisted into a divine authorization for personal vengeance. John Broadus writes, the Jews held that this law justified personal retaliation of private wrongs. It's ironic because elsewhere the Old Testament is very clear. Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall not take vengeance. So understand then the big picture. When God said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, He was establishing a foundational principle for a just legal system, and that is the punishment should fit the crime. But the scribes had taught that an eye for an eye, it really wasn't about the judicial system. It was primarily about you as an individual, and that you were justified in holding a grudge because of personal wrongs and even in acting to exact revenge for that personal wrong. In fact, they argued that it was an expression of God's justice for you to do so. So what God had intended to be a protection against abuses and personal vengeance, they twisted to be His permission, even His authorization, to harbor grudges and to pursue personal revenge. Now, we're going to look at how Jesus applies that in a specific way and how he expands on that idea. But I want, as we finish our time together today, I want us to ask, what can we do? What do we do in applying what we've learned so far? How should you respond to what you've learned today? Let me give you three very specific applications that just jump out at me. Application number one. This is more on the political, civil side of things. We're going to get personal in a moment. But on the civil, political side, we must be concerned not only with punishing criminals and protecting our communities, but as Christians, we must be concerned that the punishment handed out truly fits the crime. I think I see around me in conservative evangelical Christians a tendency to change that and turn it on its head. Listen, don't let your conservative politics and your rightful anger at criminal behavior cause you to think more like the Quran than the Bible or cause you to think more like the scribes and Pharisees than Jesus. Criminals ought to be punished, but in God's court, 
punishment should be carefully meted out so that it fits the crime, so that it doesn't give too much ground to the criminal, but nor does it give too much ground to the victim. It's balanced. Let me get more personal, though, in our application. Application number two. This principle of God's justice, and it is that, it is a bedrock principle of how God operates. This principle of God's justice, that the punishment fit the crime, should drive every single one of us to seek refuge in Jesus Christ. Think about this with me for a moment. If you have never truly repented of your sins, and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, someday you will stand before God. You can put your head in the sand, you can deny it, you can ignore it, you can pretend it's a long way off, you can do whatever you want, but it's coming, God's promised. And you will stand before God, your Creator, not merely as your Creator, but as both the Scripture and our Lord Himself said, as your judge. And the punishment that you will receive for your life of rebellion against Him and His careful commands toward you, that punishment will perfectly fit your crimes. I don't know about for you, but that is a terrifying thought. Because the last thing in the world you really want is God's justice. You will personally experience from God Himself the foundational principle of His justice, which is lex talionis. The punishment will perfectly fit the crime. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. He's not even just looking at your behavior. He's looking at what goes on in the heart. Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, Paul is dealing with the reality that God's judgment is utterly impartial. doesn't matter in chapter 1 whether you're a pagan who's never heard the truth or whether you're a religious person in chapter 2. Notice what he says in verse 3. Romans chapter 2, verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, he's referring back to the sins at the end of chapter 1, we're all judges. Did you know that? Every single one of us are judges. We are always sitting in judgment on other people's behavior. We read that list of sins and we look at some of those sins and we go, can you believe that? How could anyone ever do that? And then we just sort of skip over the ones that we struggle with. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you think you're going to get a get-out-of-jail-free card? You think God's going to say, well, okay, your list is okay. No, he's saying... Listen, how do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? Listen, the fact that God has been good to you and given you things and, and given you a good life, that isn't a sign that God is perfectly happy with how things are going in your life. That's a sign that God is good. And that He is, notice the end of verse 4, He intends for all that kindness and goodness to lead you to repentance. But don't think it's always going to be that way with God. Verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath 
and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And here's the real terrifying part, verse 6. The really terrifying part, verse 6, who will render to each person according to his deeds? Lex talionis. The punishment will perfectly fit the crime. Folks, if you understand that, then it should drive you to flee from God's justice to His grace found in His Son. That's your only hope. That's my only hope. If I get God's justice, as the psalm says, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? Who could stand before you? If you kept track of them and treated us as they deserve, not a single person could stand before you and not be swept away. I hope if you're not in Christ this morning, the reality of lex talionis, the reality of the future judgment, will drive you to your knees today to plead for God's grace in Christ. But what if you're already a Christian? How should you apply what we've learned today? Let me give you a third application. You must be willing to forgive those who have wronged you. You must be willing to forgive those who've wronged you. You remember that, that little mental list I asked you to create at the beginning? Those people who have most hurt you and the wounds of whose comments are, whose conduct still mark you and scar you? Jesus says, if you're my disciple, you have no right to harbor grudges against them. And you have no right to seek personal revenge. You must forgive them. How should you respond to personal wrongs? Jesus is going to explain this more fully. He's going to exegete this in a sense. But he's really pulling from an Old Testament text. Turn back to Leviticus. Leviticus 19. One of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, but we only know it for half of the verse. Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance. God says, no revenge. Now, perhaps you have carried out revenge. All of us have at some measure. Maybe you have in large measure. You found a way to get even with the person who's hurt you. But for many of us, we're not tempted to go that step. We're not tempted to actually act on the feelings of revenge. But as our Lord does with all of those sins in in Matthew 5, you know, you have the sin of murder. He's concerned about what goes on in the heart, anger. You have the sin of adultery. He's concerned about what goes on in the heart, lust. Same thing with this sin. So notice the rest of verse 18. You shall not take vengeance. That's the external act. Nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. That's the heart. That's the heart attitude, the spirit. God says, it's not okay It's not okay to think revenge is your personal right. It's not okay even to stop short of that and to say, I'm never going to act on those feelings of resentment, but I will nurse and cherish that anger and resentment against that person who hurt me as long as I live. Why? Here's the famous part of the verse, verse 18. But in contrast to either bearing an attitude of, uh, of a grudge or carrying out revenge... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God says, just like I love my enemies and care for those who hate me, if you're going to be mine, Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you're going to be my disciples, you're going to follow me, 
You're going to have to mimic my behavior, not the behavior of the people around you. And what did our Lord do to those who wronged him? You can't ever forget those words, his hanging on the cross, nailed there as a criminal, which he absolutely did not deserve. And in the middle of that, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they didn't know what they were doing. Listen, if you and I are going to be followers of Jesus Christ, that's what he demands of us. That little list you have of those who have hurt you the most deeply and the most profoundly, if you're going to follow Christ, you've got to be willing to let it go and to forgive them in the way you have been forgiven. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part two of An Eye for an Eye. Tom will bring you part three next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. In a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.